0: Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Ross Douthat, an op-ed columnist at the New York Times and the author of the new book, To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism. Douthat, a believing Catholic and social conservative, takes a critical look at the very popular pope and explains why he thinks some of the changes the church is considering could be detrimental to his faith. Ross Douthat joins me from Slate Studios in Brooklyn. Ross, hi. Hi, Isaac. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the program. I want to start by uh, actually reading you a passage from your book and getting your, uh, your opinion on it. I have
1: no it. objection to that.
0: Okay. Well, this is on page 13 for uh, readers reading along at home, as I'm sure most of them are already. Quote, But what happens when a pope sets out to defy this reality, to slip through the bars and evade the constraints, to act in the way that a watching world and, above all, a watching media seems to want the man at the center of the earthly church to act? What happens when a pope decides that he can deal with the church's crisis, its its deep divisions, in a swift reforming march and reshape Catholicism according to his vision? Now, When I read that passage, the person I was thinking about was not uh, Pope Francis, but someone else who uh, finds himself in a very powerful office and uh, faced with constraints and seems to want to break out of those constraints. And so my first question for you is, um, did that comparison occur to you, too? And how do you see Francis and Trump as two figures placed in these very powerful positions who are sort of fighting against tradition um of the offices they hold
1: i think i mean first of all i i did see that comparison um it's a very fraught one of course because there are some there are some obvious moral differences <laughs> between pope francis and donald trump um and there are lots of practical differences in terms of their you know, to the extent that you can say that the Pope has a policy agenda, it's pretty much diametrically opposed to the Trump agenda on all fronts with issues like migration and immigration being sort of the most telling example. Um, But in their relationship to their institutions, I think, yes, they, they are fairly similar figures. And they're both sort of coming in at a general moment in Western life where sort of institutions are tarnished and mistrusted and You know, in the case of Donald Trump, he comes into the U.S. government at the tail end of this era of the Iraq war, the financial crisis um, and everything else. And in the case of Pope Francis, he comes into a church that has struggled mightily to deal with the cultural changes ushered in by the sexual revolution and sort of, you know, broad economic changes as well, and that spent the last 10 years in the shadow of You know, a totally awful sex abuse crisis. Um, So they're both sort of they're both sort of figures coming into these institutions who then have a kind of, um, let's say, relaxed attitude towards the norms that govern the life of a president or the life of a pope. Um, and and are sort of interested in shaking things up in various ways, and I think you could argue that there's a kind of implicit make Catholicism great again aspect of the Pope's agenda. Although I think you you know you to be to be kinder to it, you'd frame it as you know make Catholicism Christian again or something. Um, so there there are real parallels, and then the difference. The I think. The, the further difference beyond the obvious ones is that I think Francis has had a more definite idea of what he wants to do with his office. Um, I think you know Trump had this sort of general populist agenda, um, but has not been particularly adept at using the levers of power in Washington. He's been stymied on various fronts and just sort of exists for, at the moment as a kind of ranting figure on Twitter. Whereas Francis, as I try and describe in my book, is you know is a very effective. Um, he's a very effective populist, a very effective disruptor in certain ways. And so he has moved in all kinds of ways internally and sort of created the context for what are potentially real and substantial changes, the likes of which Catholicism hasn't seen since the Second Vatican Council and po- depending on how you argue things further back.
0: Well, so one of the things that's interesting reading the book is that, you know, for people who don't know your you're writing in the New York Times, you're You're a very strident critic of the president, and this book is obviously very, very critical of the pope. And so it seems underlying both – or underlaying, I should say – both critiques is not just sort of a policy critique of the the pope's policies, although you do do that in the book, or the president's policies, but – That there's something about maybe sort of going against these institutional norms that you find comforting either as a Catholic or as an American that that worries you. Do you think that's fair?
1: I think that's somewhat fair. Um, I I mean I I think that my view of Trump like my view of Francis has been that the – the problems that led to their respective elections uh, were real problems that shouldn't be minimized. And, you know, in in the case of Catholicism, the sex abuse crisis was an awful thing. The total misgovernment of the Vatican under Benedict was, you know, a, a lesser but still significantly significantly bad thing. And, you know, and the gulf between, Late modern life and the teachings of the Catholic Church was a real gulf that neither John Paul II, who was very popular, nor Benedict, who was less popular, had found a way to bridge. So, as I would have been open to a you know a a populist other than Donald Trump. I tried, you know, in spite of my conservatism to be sort of open to the idea of a reforming pope. And as, as I say in the book, there are elements of the Francis agenda, including things that are not sort of consonant with the Republican Party's platform and so on that I'm not only fine with, I, I actually admire. Um, but as a Catholic, um, you know, more so even than as an American, right? I mean, I think the American Constitution is a wonderful thing, but also a contingent thing. Um, I think the sort of basic teachings of the Catholic Church are, are sort of, you know, deep, absolute truths that the church is charged with maintaining. And so to the extent that you have a figure who sees it as his mission to sort of disrupt those teachings, I look, yeah, I sort of, I look askance at that. I see it as something that potentially costs much more for the church as an institution than it gains.
0: So what specifically are you are you concerned about that that what aspects of the Francis agenda if sort of fully enacted are you most concerned about as a Catholic?
1: I mean I think the issue that he picked as sort of his entering wedge for reform um, the the opening of communion for people who Catholics who are divorced and remarried and have not been able to get an annulment of their declaring that their first marriage is, is invalid. Um, That issue from the beginning uh, I saw as really, you know, a a reform that ought to be impossible for a church that sees itself as being true, you know, in some sense, however, compromised to the very real radicalism of Jesus's message in the new Testament. Um, So, so in that sense, there's, there's a story about Catholicism, particularly a story that I think Protestants often tend to tell where, you know, the, the church has sort of piled all these man-made, invented things on top of the purity of Jesus' message. But a big part of what has always made me feel good about being a Catholic, made me feel like I have ended up in what might actually be the one true church, is the fact that on a lot of the sort of stranger, harder parts of the gospel— Um, Catholicism has held close to what Jesus actually said in ways that other Christian churches haven't. And, you know, the indissolubility of marriage, which when Jesus sort of expressed this, even his disciples were sort of taken aback. Um, So in that sense, you know, the sort of the divorce and remarriage thing is clearly a case where, you know, Francis wants a kind of truce with post-sexual revolution culture. And since I live in that culture, too, I completely understand the impulse. Um, But I think it ends in a kind of betrayal, not only of sort of church teaching in some abstract way, but of the, you know, the 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 radicalism of the gospel that the church is charged with protecting and transmitting.
0: Putting aside, I I don't think you and I are going to agree about sort of. Whether there's some fundamental truth to the message about divorce that that you're reading and that I might not agree with, but but what I am curious about is sort of how you see something like divorce in the context of a modern society like 2018. And so you have Catholic people who are um, in a marriage and things go awry as things do. Um, what what sort of practically speaking? Do you is your message to those people? Given what you're saying in the book,
1: I mean, it depends what situation they're in, right? Um, I mean, I, I think my general message is that marriages, many more marriages, are worth saving than are actually saved in our society. So, I have a a general pro marriage, anti divorce bias, and I think that um, that sort of our society's general comfort with divorce. Is a moral mistake that has consequences for children, especially, but for you know entire family networks that we don't sufficiently reckon with. So that that's sort of that's sort of my general view, and obviously that's a sociological view as well as a moral and theological view that right. informs informs my view. Um, you know, for people for people whose marriages do break up, uh, I I think that you know, the the church has become much more flexible in various ways, especially in the United States on annulment policy uh, and the grounds for which annulments are granted. And I have mixed feelings about that, but I think it's an understandable shift that is much, you know, that is sort of trying to, in effect, accommodate the reality that we all live with without doing so in a way that sort of breaks faith with what Jesus is saying. So. Uh, you know in some cases i would say that people in that situation should pursue the process of an annulment and then for people who are who do not or cannot or sort of you know the kind of people that i think the pope is, is ultimately has in mind i don't think it is in fact unreasonable um, for the church to ask people to abstain from holy communion um you know it doesn't mean that they it, it, does, it that they always will um i again personally have undoubtedly uh taken holy communion in contexts where i shouldn't you know every everybody's life is complicated and messy and so on uh yeah let's hear about those everybody everybody's relationship with their church is complicated and messy and so on but for the church itself to essentially either drop the teaching entirely or sort of put it away in a book somewhere in the vatican as this kind of ideal that no one can reach i think is a huge cultural abdication that has costs for not just sort of people who find themselves in these genuinely hard situations, but people getting married, contemplating marriage right now, people trying to make their marriages stay together, and so on. And I, my parents are divorced, and my grandparents were divorced between before them. And i i understand the I, I understand the hardship that a teaching like this can impose on people, and the distance it can seem to create between them and God. But at the same time, I also understand the costs of divorce for the people who live with it who aren't the couple involved. And that, you know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a social value as well as, a, again, a moral and theological value in having one institution, this institution that, again, claims to be the custodian of God's actual revolution to, revelation to humanity— holding to indissolubility when all the rest of the culture has just decided to deal with people breaking their vows and leaving their children potentially with a kind of shrug.
0: And so is your sort of fear of if, if the changes Francis wants to put in the church move forward is that essentially, it just on a very practical level, again, not talking about sort of the truths of the church that you feel may be being betrayed in some way, but that essentially these compromises that you see modern societies having made about things like divorce are just you know that the church could sort of function as a necessary bulwark against them and that you know
1: yeah i I don't see any i don't see any gain to society in roman catholicism becoming a kind of therapeutic chaplaincy to post-sexual revolution society um, and I don't see anything in Western society right now, our, you know, our society of sort of me too angst and, you know, low birth rates and low marriage rates and general anomie that suggests that we've achieved this amazing social model um, that the Catholic Church needs to get up to speed and adapt to. Um, I think there are obviously things about modern life that the church can and should learn from and that, the ch- you know, that the church is, that the church has been, far too harsh and rigorous and cruel at various times in the past but looking at the correlations of forces right now i think sort of yes snuffing snuffing out the catholic critique of what seems to me a sort of decadent and flailing civilization doesn't seem to do anybody any any practical good
0: i was waiting to how long you would tell you would say the word decadent we're not that far in that's good Um, but Okay, but let me let me ask you one other. It's a use. It's a useful word. No, I I, uh, I agree with you. Um, even if I not, but no, I mean it's it's hard to deny that we've become uh, decadent after the last. Uh, I mean, a, anyone who doubted. I think the that that Trump some phenomenon level, has yeah.
1: convinced even liberals that decadence is a useful word for our situation.
0: No, that's uh, I I can't uh, I can't argue with that. What do you think the church's teaching should be on issues of um, gay marriage and um, gay rights generally?
1: I mean, I, I think that. As in certain ways, as with divorce and remarriage, um, I think the church needs to, has needed to, and probably continues to need to adapt reasonably to the realities of sort of post-closet life and the the, you know the reality of of homosexuality as a as a phenomenon that. um, Let me rephrase that slightly: the reality of the reality of gay people as a class whom um, whom Christians and Catholics have often treated cruelly in the past. And in that sense, the rhetoric, the general rhetoric that Pope Francis uses, the rhetoric of mercy and accompaniment and so on, I think is entirely appropriate um, for the church. But I don't think the church can bless same-sex unions, um, and for the same reason that I don't think it can um, bless second marriages. Uh, and I, I think that ultimately the Christian vision of sexuality, the New Testament vision is not compatible with um with same sex marriage and I don't see a way to change that again without entering into a kind of a kind of deception, basically.
0: When you when we were talking about Trump and, and Pope Francis earlier and you were saying that, you know, um Trump had been elected after all these sort of societal problems that you thought that needed to be addressed somehow. And Francis also was chosen after the uh, the crisis of child sex abuse. One of the one of the interesting sort of through lines there is that you know, I think Trump's critics would say he actually hasn't solved any of the problems he was elected to solve and may make some of them worse. And what's what's interesting is that there's a sort of growing critique of the way Francis is dealing with the sex abuse crisis, where it's the one issue that he seems to not get Great press on, and it's the one issue where he doesn't seem to have kind of the common touch in speaking about it. And so I was wondering why you think he hasn't been able to sort of master that issue the way he has others. And two, how you think, just in terms of the policies he's tried to implement, he's dealt with the crisis.
1: Well, I think it's a case study in sort of the limits of a of a very personalized and charismatic style of leadership. Um, I, I think Francis has, in certain ways, done. He's done things that the last couple of popes were unwilling to do. He's actually gone in and removed um, bishops in cases where bishops had sort of participated in a cover up or otherwise mishandled sex abuse allegations, and that's a good thing. And it's and it's a necessary step. I think generally Pope Benedict did a good job sort of cleaning up the way the church handled abusive priests, but didn't go far enough in how he handled. Um, bishops who enabled them. And Francis has gone a little further, but he's gone that way in a sort of personalized way where there are sort of specific, specific cases and specific bishops where he'll act, but then if he has sort of personal reasons of loyalty or friendship as, as he, you know, or sort of where he feels like his credibility is invested, as in some of these recent cases in, in Chile, especially where he had a kind of disastrous visit, then he can just seem sort of stubborn and and out of touch on the issue. And what there hasn't been clearly is a sort of structural breakthrough in terms of how the church handles not just priests, but bishops. And that's true, sort of, in a lot of areas in the Vatican. The pope was elected, ultimately, the cardinals who elected him wanted someone to clean up Vatican finances, sort of reform the bureaucracy, which is really not a bureaucracy, but a kind of Renaissance court. Um, And Francis has come in and, you know, given a lot of sort of moralistic speeches to members of the Curia and made a few sort of high profile moves and firings and so on. But then on a sort of day-to-day level, very little has changed. A lot of the sort of figures who were who were prominent and incompetent or corrupt under Benedict are there. Some figures who had lost favor have sort of come back as part of Francis's court. Um, and there is, you know, there's once again with some of Francis's allies, a kind of miasma of corruption that extends beyond just this sex abuse crisis. So it is, in a sense, again, what you'd kind of expect from a populist style of leadership and its weaknesses. You get, you know, a certain kind of very strong sort of moralistic rhetoric and some sort of interesting and important high-profile moves. But the sort of institutional side of things is something that Francis just hasn't been interested in or effective in, in dealing with. And where he has been, he's preferred, as, as I said earlier, to sort of spend his energy seeking this kind of Broader moral theological shift on culture war issues.
0: We're not even getting the good moralistic rhetoric here, unfortunately.
1: Well, we got it. We got it initially, right? But but yeah, in the in the in the recent cases, the Latin American cases, you had. I mean, he he basically sort of critiqued the people who were critiquing this bishop. Oh, I meant in terms of, of Trump calumny. He d- I oh, in terms, terms of Trump, Trump we weren't getting
0: oh, yeah. the moralistic. Uh... What
1: drain the swamp, man? Drain yeah. the swamp yeah. is the moralistic is the moralistic rhetoric. But yes, Trump. Trump is not delivering on even the moral vision of populism. I think that's fair to say. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
0: Go to your happy place. For a happy price, go to your happy price, price line. I interviewed Michael Gerson, who's an evangelical conservative but also anti Trump, who wrote a cover story for The Atlantic, I think last month, about evangelicals uh, essentially selling their soul to Trump. And one of the points he made when I talked to him, and he may make in the piece too, I'm forgetting which is which, but um, is essentially that he thinks Catholics have resisted Trump better than evangelicals. And his reason for it was essentially that the Catholic Church teaches all these things on a variety of issues, uh, including sort of a a much more pro-immigrant stance, for example, and that the, the fact that there was a centralized church that was preaching these things, some of which were at war with Trump's message— had sort of kept Catholics from falling prey to Trumpism the way evangelicals had. And I'm curious how that lines up with your own analysis.
1: I think there's some truth to it, Uh, although, you know, Trump had plenty of especially white Catholic voters who supported him. I think one other thing that that is true of Catholicism is that the way the church is structured um, doesn't create these kind of entrepreneurial pastors seeking a certain kind of political influence. You know, the, the bishops of the Catholic Church in the United States run the gamut from liberal to conservative, but they're all sort of embedded in this structure that doesn't reward necessarily the kind of, you know, the kind of effective freelancing and influence courting that you see from, you know, from Jerry Falwell Jr. and figures like that. And, you know, a, a big part of why we associate evangelicals with um with defenses of Trump in a way that we don't Catholics. It's not just that lots that more evangelicals voted for him. It's also that you have these high profile figures uh, who are sort of self-appointed leaders of evangelicalism who see a percentage in being invited to the White House and being invited on TV to raise their leadership profiles while making the case for Trump and so on. And the Catholic hierarchy does provide, I think, a certain protection against that that kind of temptation for for influence seeking. Um, and also Gerson is right that there is sort of a, a different sense of sort of what Christian social teaching is somewhat in the church that tempers to some extent the pull of sort of a defensive partisanship of the kind that led people to support Trump. Um, but you do have lots of Pro-Trump conservative Catholics, f- off who support him, f- just for exactly the same reasons that I think the more sincere evangelicals do—just this sense of sort of embattlement in a hostile liberal culture, this anxiety about um, the Obama administration's various moves that affected religious institutions—and you know, those those Catholics I- in that world, you do sometimes get the sort of egregious excuse making of the kind you get from evangelicals, where evangelicals might compare Trump to King David. And Catholics might compare him to Constantine, for instance. Um, and so there is there are some overlaps uh, and parallels. And I am a little bit distinctive in being critical of both the Pope and the president. Um I think f- many of Francis's sharpest critics, especially among traditionalist Catholics, have had a a kind of um, a kind of at least pragmatic support for Trump.
0: Do you feel embattled in liberal culture as a um, conservative who writes for the New York Times and engages with pop culture a lot? I mean, you you review films and so on.
1: I try not to feel too embattled. Uh, I don't think that's sort of a healthy approach for someone who writes for a newspaper like the New York Times to take. Um, and so, I, I mean, that means in part that I try and avoid sort of wallowing in things that might make me feel too embattled i don't you know you don't want to spend hours in the comment threads or reading your mentions on twitter because it can sort of encourage a bunker mentality um in its own right but i'm also not you know i'm i'm in a kind of privileged position uh, and i'm not running a christian or conservative institution And I think I would feel probably more embattled or I would have certainly in the Obama era if I were a, you know, president of an evangelical or Catholic college looking at, you know, regulations coming down from the Department of Health and Human Services. um, You know, there, there are just sort of lots of there are lots of positions of institutional authority where the tension between. Sort of liberal policy and liberal cultural goals and traditional Christian teaching is, is very sharply felt. Um, and the position of newspaper columnist isn't quite one of them because after all, you know, in part, I'm at the Times in order to sort of make manifest that tension because it's hopefully leads to good columns and interesting arguments.
0: There's been a lot of debate about liberal institutions hiring conservative writers and publishing conservative op-eds. We've seen this at the New York Times after they hired your colleague Brett Stevens. We've seen it with a number of op-eds the New York Times opinion page has run. We've seen it recently at the Atlantic Monthly who hired a man named Kevin Williamson at uh, who was formerly of National Review. I guess my question for you is obviously I'm not going to ask you to criticize your colleagues, but I, I, my question,
1: I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it feels like there's this thing going on where after Trump's election, I think a lot of people on the left or in liberal institutions felt like we're missing out. We're not We're not getting what's going on in real America, which is why we saw 10,000 pieces about, you know, going to diners and talking to Trump voters. And so I think it's led to more openness to higher conservative voices at mainstream institutions. But the the irony seems to me to be, if this is an irony, that these people are not pro-Trump conservatives. They are anti-Trump conservatives. I think the thinking probably being that among you know people who decide these things that there are no really smart pro-Trump arguments. And so I- I'm wondering of what you think of the way many of these liberal institutions have reacted, which is to say we need to hear more conservative voices and at the same time to say, but we're not going to bring in Trump supporters.
1: I-, I think, first of all, the Trump phenomenon just sort of creates a basic dilemma for sort of Journalistic institutions um, that that aspire to have diversity of opinion and don't want to just be defined as liberal institutions, uh, which is that, as, as you say, most of the conservative commentariat, independent of their specific policy views, was anti-Trump. So libertarians were anti-Trump, neoconservatives were anti-Trump, um, so I guess social conservatives like myself were anti-Trump, so wherever you go – looking for ideological diversity, whatever piece of um, the conservative worldview you think your readers should hear more from, you are going to have a dearth of pro-Trump columnists. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't be found. Um, There are some smart pro-Trump columnists, although I do think even the smartest ones end up defending Trumpism as an abstraction more than the man himself. Um, But it is a challenge to... it's It's a shallow pool of um, uh, writers and thinkers who have the chops that you want to sort of engage, especially engage with a more liberal readership and also support Trump. So that that's clearly just a sort of baseline dilemma. Now, independent of that dilemma, I don't think that ideological diversity in these institutions is a good thing just because it sort of helps you understand what Trump voters per se were thinking. I think it just sort of expands. It's good to expand your political horizons generally in the aftermath of an event like the Trump election that was so shocking, but that is also sort of part of this general wave of disruption and political uncertainty all across the United States and Western Europe. Um, so I, I think that there's value in hiring more people from the right, even if they don't technically speak for Trump voters in a direct way, because they do speak to ideas and concepts and realities that um, I think sort of have slipped a little bit out of the grasp of a... Of of sort of elite an elite liberal culture that felt a little too comfortable with the idea that it had sort of achieved a kind of end of history position from which it could just pass judgment on everything outside it, and I think in addition that that extends to voices further to the left. Um, so my my view. Is a sort of it's a sort of ecumenical view that um, you know that that the people who complain when conservatives are hired at these places and say, well, why don't you hire more socialists and anarchists and so on, have a totally reasonable point. And in my ideal world institutions like my own would have more conservatives and also more people who are left wing and also more people who are just sort of eccentric. Um, And in that sense, I guess I can say, you know, this is this is something specific to the times I was Unhappy in the sort of quick arc of the woman we hired from this, you know, the sort of weird world of net free speech, you know, absolutist who turned out to have this weird friendship with a, you know, with a neo-Nazi. Um, I think it was totally understandable why we parted ways with her, but it was also an example of how. You know, once you get a little bit beyond the world of the journalistic clerisy, you do get people who you know don't play by the rules and have weird friendships and say offensive things and so on. Um, but you also get opinions and ideas that are useful for understanding the world we live in. So, I generally like the idea of outlets having the courage to to sort of take risks with people from all different parts of the political spectrum conservatism included, but not at all limited to conservatism. I agree
0: with you that bringing in conservatives can still serve a purpose, even if those conservatives are not pro-Trump conservatives and that opening ourselves up to different voices is, you know, um, is important. I think that some of the people who've been hired, I'm not talking about the Times per se, just generally, is that you see a lot of conservatives who have the same take on Trump that... I have or a bunch of liberal writers might have. And in fact, the ways in which they're conservative do not represent sort of 40 percent of the country, but represent just the other side of the elite consensus. So, you know, they dislike Trump, but they're extremely hawkish on foreign policy or they Mm -hmm. dislike Trump, but they're – I'm trying to think what
1: a different example would be – They dislike Trump, but they're for free trade. They dislike yes. Fine. Um, Right.
0: They're in favor of increased
1: immigration and so on. And And you have right. And you have extreme cases like Jennifer Rubin, who is sort of still notionally a conservative blogger for The Washington Post, who in the age of Trump is just simply against anything that, you know, has sort of ceased to become a conservative. And I'm not casting aspersions on on her motives i think something like the trump election can you know cause people to evolve and change in all kinds of ways but yeah she but her her pieces for the post do not in in spite of sort of her technical conservative label don't represent sort of massive diversity a massive a major shift in diversity of opinion I, i agree is
0: there is there anyone though that you i mean do you i don't think you answered the sort of question of whether you think that the time should hire sort of a pro-Trump conservative. Um, and, and I guess that the obvious follow-up is, are there people that you see making the case for Trump that you read that you find intelligent or interesting, or are the conservatives that you read and find interesting ones who, like yourself, I think, kind of recognize certain aspects of what Trumpism perhaps could have been as being more appealing than kind of... Paul Ryanism to aspects of right. the Republican Party, but who was deeply opposed to the man himself and many of the things he stands for.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess if you asked me to sort of cite my favorite pro-Trump columnists, or not columnists, but sort of writers on the right, the list would include um, Dan McCarthy, uh, the editor of Modern Age, who uh, did a piece for us sort of defending Trump's trade policy and uh, piece for the Times, I mean. And um, I had him in to do a, a larger dialogue about the Trump era. Um, he's an incredibly smart guy, a uh, very good writer. Um, Christopher Caldwell uh, was sort of uh, he hasn't written as much about Trump, but he was sort of, again, pro-Trump, I think, at least tacitly during the campaign. And he's one of the best conservative writers there is. Um, someone who doesn't write as much about day to day politics, but Helen Andrews, who's a young uh, a, a younger conservative writer who writes a lot about um a lot about literature and ideas for a bunch of different outlets. I think she was sort of tacitly pro trump but but I would say as, as I said before that it, as I list these names and I think about their writing in many situations, they are again defending a sort of idea of trumpism that seems a little bit removed from the man himself and I think it's a big it's a big challenge to give someone a column and expect them to sort of go week by week defending things that Trump does week by week because I I do think it's you know it, it it's it's hard to find to my mind a an intellectually coherent case um, for not the not some macro level stuff but the day-to-day workings of this administration um, so so yeah and and that and that then create does create a again, a challenge for outlets, because if you're hiring someone as a columnist, you aren't just hiring them to write about sort of big picture stuff. And, you know, I, you know, I'm in favor of populism writ large, or I'm pro Brexit, you're asking them to write about the week in week out stuff of Washington politics. And I, I don't, I can't think of a writer who week in and week out has defended Trump. And I have found persuasive at a level that I would want to read as a as a regular columnist.
0: I think part of the issue in terms of why people on the left are so angry at some of these hires and why other people defend it and and sort of ideological diversity is – and I I myself feel a little bit torn about this – is that I both feel that I want to read people who have different opinions of me. Although, I mean, I think the value of that maybe has been overstated by everyone and that – uh, mm-hmm. You know, we all like reading people we agree with too. But um, I, I do think it's good to have some level of ideological diversity. I also feel like
1: nobody agrees with me, so I don't really know what that's like. But I'll take your word for uh, it.
0: Okay, yeah, the besieged intellectual, right? <laughs> um, I guess I also sort of feel like we have a president who I find to be a racist and who is enacting agenda that I an agenda that I think is in many ways bigoted and. I realize this all comes down to definitions of what's racist or what's not. But when I see a writer being hired who wrote something that I perceive as bigoted in some way, part of me just feels like, you know what, like enough, like just you do that now in modern society, given what's going on and you lose your you lose your chance to write for serious publications. And again, I mean, this can turn into a debate about, well, then what is racist or what is not racist? But I also think that one of the frustration of people on the left is that. About people that kind of are broadly agreed to be racist or have expressed racist thought, that conservatives who rant about political correctness or who say we need ideological diversity will not just draw a line and say, you know what, this is unacceptable. We are not going to support this person getting a job somewhere. And I and I think that's where a lot of the sort of tension and misunderstanding comes in.
1: I agree, but there's also a lot of there's a, there's a lot of variation in the reasons why. Liberals seem to get angry, too, right? So, I I mean, you're bringing up race because I I assume because Kevin Williamson is the new hire at the Atlantic. And there is, you know, there is a quote from the beginning of a piece that he wrote many years ago um, for National Review that seems, you know, where he's being accosted by a young black kid. And he describes the young black kid in what um, in what seems like racist language to people. Um, But when Brett Stevens was hired at The Times, the objection to him was all about his views on climate change. And, you know, the freak out about Barry Weiss, uh, my other colleague recently, was sort of about racism in some loose sense where she had, you know, written this tweet about an Olympian who wasn't an immigrant, who was the child of immigrants and so on. Um, And I know that this was sort of a proxy for larger disagreements um, with her writing. But I I don't think it's just I, I guess I'm saying I don't think it's just a case of sort of liberals drawing the line about race. I think there's an attempt to just draw a lot. I agree with
0: that. I think that's um, true to
1: say, look, you know, you have to have, you know, there are certain things that that are that are not negotiable um, and the list is expanding. And I mean, this is sort of, you know, not to go all that's how you got Trump (laughs) on you. But there is a sense in which, you know, liberalism has been on the cultural ascendance for the last 10 or 15 years. And part of its cultural ascendance has been trying to take previous lines that it has sort of drawn to exclude, for instance, overt racists from debate that most of us agree are good lines and expand those, expand the definition of racism and so on. And the other difficulty with this is sort of an internet era difficulty, right, which is that, you know, I mean, Kevin Williamson has written a million words about a million subjects over a long and varied journalistic career. And you know my my impression of some of the rage against him is that it takes you know it finds his most trollish tweet and his most insensitive passage and so on and it builds a case for kevin williamson you know terrible person kevin williamson is in fact a kind of you know he he ha, he's a misanthrope that's his writing style and he's and and it's a distinctive kind of thing and i think you know he i think he does it very well um and he writes about The white underclass from which he comes in much the same critical way that he writes about the black underclass, which is, again, something that makes him kind of interesting among conservatives who have a tendency to criticize the black underclass and romanticize the white underclass. Um, So I'm just I have, as you know, someone who tweets and writes myself a certain discomfort with the tendency to say, well, we can explain a writer's fitness or unfitness for society by finding the most offensive things he's ever said rather than looking at what is interesting and distinctive about his entire body of work.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, it's lines, and it's it's how bad you think those few things that you're picking out from... A body of work are, I guess. But I I guess, let me ask you this. I mean, you say people who've written hundreds of thousands of words or so on. I mean, you've written hundreds of thousands of words. You are a conservative columnist. You have views that I think a lot of liberal readers disagree with. You don't seem to have faced a Kevin Williamson type backlash or a backlash um, that Brett Stevens faced when he joined the Times. And I'm wondering why you think that is.
1: Well, part of it is that I joined the Times at a period when um, I was unknown, <laughs> very and very young. And liberalism was in this sort of relaxed, early Obama era mood of optimism. Um, and so and I also replaced Bill Crystal, who was sort of, you know, was hated by liberals on very different grounds for his role in supporting the Iraq war. Um, so so I think for all of those reasons, there was no sort of, and there was no internet outrage culture um, to go back and find things that I'd written. And attack them. Um, So for all those reasons, I could sort of, you know, enter without without this level of controversy. And then, you know, and then I've worked for liberal publications my whole career. So I have a I have a very clear sense, I think, of to what extent you can sort of write in dialogue in ways that allow people who don't agree with you to give you a hearing and not assume that you're a bigot and a troglodyte. Um, And the challenge is, if you're hiring people from conservative publications, you're hiring people who haven't spent their life lives sort of doing that very careful thing, walking that tightrope. And so they're going to have their you know, they're going to have things in their in their paper trail, you know, that sort of wouldn't fly as columns for more or or, or arguments for more liberal readership. Um, now, with that being said, though. You know, I think about, I don't know how long ago, two months ago, uh, maybe less, uh, I wrote a column arguing that liberals should be willing to negotiate with Stephen Miller, um, even though they might think of him as a white nationalist, because immigration restrictionism is a part of American politics that isn't going away. There are reasonable cases to be made for it, and you can actually maybe hash out a more plausible lasting deal on immigration with someone like him at the table than you would just by putting... People who already agree on the issue in the room uh, as past immigration deals have have tried to do. And that column um, did get me accused of being a, you know, either normalizing white nationalism, normalizing racism, if not being a racist or a Nazi. Myself, And it wasn't the same level of outrage that some other things have generated, but it was it was sort of slotted in as an example of, you know, the Times is becoming a newspaper that enables enables Nazis and Richard Spencer is shifting the Overton window and so on. Um, So, you know, I'm not I'm not you know, I obviously don't think that my column was an example of sort of white nationalist propaganda, but I'm not I'm not going to sort of. Persuade people otherwise in, in an interview with you, but I think it's an example of how sort of it doesn't you know this is a very fraught moment <laughs> in American politics and people are on edge and I think there it's a case too of where the link to Trump really mattered. I think if I had written the same column in a general way as I've done many times and said here are the arguments for a sort of moderate restrictionism on immigration. Here is why we shouldn't necessarily expand the immigration rate readers wouldn't have gotten upset. But because I was saying liberals or centrists should be willing to negotiate with the Trump White House and particularly this sort of figure that people consider noxious, Stephen Miller, it did get that. It did get that kind of reaction, Um, which is in turn a case study in the challenges that um, we were talking about earlier that a literal (laughs) pro-Trump columnist would obviously face in writing for an audience like The Times's.
0: Well, that was my least favorite column of yours in a very long time. So maybe we've hit upon the, uh, the germ of a difference here. I mean, I guess just to... Just to go back, you said something interesting, which was that you said that by because you'd been writing for liberal publications, you knew – I think you said two things. One is that you knew kind of how to phrase your argument in such a way that liberals would listen to, but it also meant that you wouldn't sort of go past certain lines the way maybe writers of conservative magazines like the National Review or somewhere else would not quite know. And is is that – am I paraphrasing that okay?
1: Sure. That Yeah. That, I mean, argue, arguments written for people who – disagree with you are inevitably more careful and let's say polite than arguments written for people who agree with you.
0: Well, right. But I also thought you were saying, and maybe this is wrong, that the standards of what you know you were going to say about not you take you out of it but the standards that someone would write about a racial issue or something uh and sort of trying to be sensitive about that or non-bigoted or whatever term you want would be higher at a place like the times than they might be at conservative publications and it seems to me that that's true um and that that's also probably a good thing and that part of the frustration is that you know, National Review for many years had a man called John Derbyshire write for them. And I think when both of us were coming up in journalism, who would write these awful things very frequently. Um, And that essentially, that having these types of standards that liberal institutions have, which people like to make fun of as being overly politically correct, or, you know, everyone's walking on eggshells, there is a certain value in sort of enforcing the idea that We're going to talk about these things in certain ways and not to say that people shouldn't have the right to talk about them in other ways, but that the people we want to give platforms to will talk about them in certain ways.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's reasonable, but I also think that there is a, you know, there's a zone of left-right disagreement about where racial insensitive sensitivity um, becomes racism versus where, you know, it becomes sort of having an on the other side, having an honest conversation about race um and i i think you know as someone who i write movie reviews for national review but i you know i'm not a, i'm not a sort of spokesman for national review in any way but they've you know including in the derbyshire era um they've published pieces on race where i think you know the sort of racial racial insensitivity could shade into into something more toxic and derbyshire being an example and but of course derbyshire was ultimately jettisoned from national review um, for p- a piece he didn't write for them but that he wrote for a um, a more sort of uh, racist tolerant website I guess you might say I-, I guess my my point is just that it's fine for liberal publications to have standards um it's fine for for any publication to have standards and clearly there are, you know there are people who might write for a conservative publication and whose um, whose views it would be totally reasonable for liberals to not want to publish in their publication um i'm just skeptical again of an approach that says you know we're going to look at your whole body of work and find places where you know where where you cross the line um i I think that that approach again doesn't do justice to the you know the real complexity of a full writing career
0: Um, I should also say that I started journalism or basically started journalism in a place called The New Republic, which when I started working there was owned by a man with uh, some very toxic political views. And so this is not purely a left-right issue since that was broadly a liberal magazine. Um, In the interest of full disclosure, I feel like I should say that. But Ross Douthat, the book is To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism. It is available wherever you buy books. Ross, thank you so much for coming in.
1: Absolutely, thank you for having me on.
0: And that's our show for today. I have to ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to Nika Singh at Northgate Studios here in Berkeley. And thanks also for help from Jason DeLeon at Slate in Brooklyn. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's ASK at Slate.com. You can also follow me at Twitter at IChotner to get information about the show.